You're listening to the First Baptist Rockdale Sunday Sermons Podcast. First Baptist Rockdale is a church dedicated to making disciples who make disciples. We hope you enjoy this week's message. We continue to walk through the book of Esther. If you have your Bible, you can open to Esther chapter 4 today to give you a brief, just high-level summary of what's going on in the book of Esther up to this point. Um, There was a woman named Esther, spoiler alert, um, and she had a cousin named Mordecai who had raised her. Um, Esther was uh, kidnapped, uh, for lack of better word, um, and brought to live in the harem of the king of Persia. Esther was a Jewish woman living in the empire of Persia. The king of Persia um, had her taken because she was attractive along with all the other women that were naturally attractive and brought into his harem to live there. Um, and through a, a series of, of uh, you know, coincidences, we would say, but really through divine providence, um, she found favor everywhere she went, um, and she moved from a member of the king's harem to the queen of the Persian empire. She was married by the king. He, he set the crown on her head, um, and she was the queen of Persia. There was another man who was uh, uh, very close to the king at this time, a man named Haman, and he was an Agagite, according to the book of Esther. And what that means is he was an enemy of Israel. He hated everything to do with the Jewish people. It was deep inside of him, this animosity and anger towards the Jewish people. Uh, And one day he was um, being honored for being just an excellent worker for the king, um, and everyone had to bow down to him. And, uh, and, And there was one guy who wouldn't bow down, and that was Mordecai, Esther's cousin. He was, he was also working for the king at the time, and he wouldn't bow down to Haman, and this caused Haman to be um, bitter and grieved and angry in his heart, and so he vowed to find a way um, to kill uh, Mordecai, and so he was going to build these gallows to kill Mordecai, uh, and then he was going to ultimately not just take his revenge out on his political rival, Mordecai, but on all of Mordecai's relatives. The entire Jewish nation um, was going to be set for destruction. He goes to the king, says, king, I'd like to kill all of these people. And the king says, sounds good. This is a high-level overview, by the way. Sounds like a good plan. Let's kill all these people. Haman says, I'll give you, you know, a couple tons of silver if you let me kill the people. The king says, I'm poor. I'll take your silver. You can kill your people. Uh, And they set a date, and on one day, there's going to be a purge of all of the Jewish people, um, and uh, neighbors could rise up and kill the Jews uh, without any consequences whatsoever, steal their belongings, um, steal their their, their cattle, steal their um, treasures. Uh, And then um, after that day, uh, a certain amount would be brought back to the king, uh, and the world would be rid of the plague of Judaism, uh, according to Mordecai, or according to Haman, at this time. This is a bad time for the nation of Israel, right? This is one of those times uh, where, where there is a life or death situation facing the entirety of their people group. It's tough for us to wrap our heads around mass annihilation events, right? We don't, we don't deal with that in the United States of America very much, right? We don't have the opportunity Uh, We've never been witness to the opportunity of someone taking and saying, I'm going to center out these single out these people for their utter and complete destruction. I'm not talking about discrimination. I'm not talking about enslavement. I'm talking about actual, literal execution just because of where they're from, who they come from, what their background 
story is. And so in this time, it brings us um, to a time of crisis. And this crisis is publicized across the whole world, and they have an opportunity, the known world, which was the Persian Empire, they have an opportunity, um, everyone has an opportunity to respond to this crisis. You know, our world today is in a variety of crises, right? If you look beyond our, our very narrow American news cycle, the world is always in chaos, right? We, we, we take our peace every once in a while and do a little chaos for ourselves, but really the world at large is, is in chaos, uh, read broadly, look at the international news section of your newspaper, the part that we, you know, we, we get rid of to get to the obituaries and the funnies, which are some reason what we look for, right? But if you go to the international section of any major newspaper, you can read about conflict after conflict, major, major earth-shattering darkness, and in our hearts, we should be moved to want to respond to that. There should be something inside of us when we hear of tragedy going on somewhere um, to a fellow uh, human being that we should be moved to want to interact, to want to engage, to want to fix whatever that problem is. And we know that not every person is called to every situation, but God has called you to some specific situations to engage yourself in that work. One of the things that motivates me, um, I was talking uh, to my, my oldest son, he's 17, he'll be 18, uh, within a month, within a month from now, he'll be 18. I guess that means he's moving out, yes? That's a thumbs up. Uh, but, you know, uh, he's 18 soon, um, and, uh, and we're looking forward to that, looking forward. By the way, he's fortunate enough to turn 18, like, 17 days after the election, right? What a blessing that is for him. I mean that, by the way, very much so. Um, the responsibility of voting is, is, is not always a, a, a blessing on us. So maybe an extra four years might, might make the world better for him. But he, uh, he, we're talking about future plans. What do you want to do? What could you do? Where do you want to, what do you want to study? How do you want to move forward uh, in this world? We were working um, through all of those things. And we talked about ministry, right? Because if your dad is a preacher, ministry is an opportunity that gets talked about in your house. I don't know how many high school seniors... Parents say, well, what about being a preacher? Um, that's the sort of thing that, that your preacher dad will ask you, right? Well, what about, what about doing something like what your dad has done your whole life? Uh, and he said, well, look, I, I, I can see maybe something in youth ministry or something like that, because he's seen me do that as well, uh, which there's a ton of fun stuff in youth ministry. He says, but I don't really, I don't really see myself doing what you do now. Uh, you know, ultimately, he says, I deal with too many dead people. That's, what he, that, that's the way, I guess, the, the big crisis there is that I, I do. By the way, that's, I won't go there. I don't mind that part of the job, honestly. That, that's really not the worst part of the job. There's much, much worse parts of this job than that. Live people cause me a lot more problem um, than those who have passed on easily, easily so. Um, but I was like, oh, yeah, well, that's understandable to me. I said, but you know, whenever I was your age, uh, I surrendered to the ministry when I was a senior in high school. It was a Senior Recognition Sunday. I surrendered to the ministry. I knew that God had been working on me for, for about two years in that area, and I just finally surrendered to the ministry at 18, and um, I walked the aisle at 18 years old and said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit my life to vocational ministry. It's what I'm gonna do. Um, this is just where I'm going to go. Uh, and I had no clue that this is where I would be. If I had drawn you a roadmap of what my ministry life would have looked like, it would have looked different. I would have been in international missions. My heart is for the nations. It really is. That, that is my, uh, I have a, um, a desire to see um, people who have never heard the gospel respond to the gospel. It just motivates me. If you, if some of y'all, uh, ladies particularly, I'm speaking your language right now, um, because for some reason um, y'all are the only people who know missions. 
inside of the Baptist church. But um, if, if you've grown up hearing the mission stories, or if you've grown up hearing the stories uh, of missionaries uh, who have gone uh, and given their lives uh, to, to go live a risky life um, to let people know about Jesus Christ, right? Those stories, when you hear them as a young person, change who you are. Um, they, they matter, by the way. That's one of the reasons that, that we have a weaker church now than we did when some of you were younger, is that we've lost contact with that grand mission that this call to being a Christian isn't what we see here so often, this call to comfortable Christianity in air-conditioned rooms with other fellow believers. What a blessing it is that we live in the United States of America and we have rooms like this where believers can gather together. It really is um, a sign of divine grace on our lives to do that. But we need to hear the stories of what goes on around the world. And so I still read those stories. That's a big part of my life is seeing what God is doing out there. And as I read stories of what was going on in China, I don't want to set China up as a big boogeyman politically, but religiously. What's going on in China, the, the persecution of the Christian church inside the, the nation of China is absolutely tragic. I mean, it is, it is a systematic, whole-scale destruction of the religious systems that have been built up over the years since the communist revolution, right? Once the communist revolution happened, there was a massive purging of Christianity, and ever since that date, the, the church has been building back up. And now, under the current leadership of China, They've crushed back down, and they're reverting all the way back um, to what it was uh, under Chairman Mao. I mean, it is a serious, serious situation over there. As I read those stories of Chinese believers who are being arrested and scooped up and um, put in re-education camps, right? What a, what, a, what a wonderful term that is, to relearn how to be Chinese instead of being a Christian who is Chinese, right? It breaks my heart. And when we hear those stories, I pray that you are in a place where you hear some of those stories sometimes. There's something in you. There's just something in you that flips and you say, we have to do something. Right? We have to do something to help these believers who are being um, uh, just, just absolutely persecuted. I read about what's going on uh, in Nigeria under Boko Haram, and the Boko Haram people will, will ride into towns and, and just execute Christians just because they can, and they'll ride out. It's going on across the world. Whole-scale tragedy is happening. And we live inside of our comfortable red brick churches with air conditioning. We complain if the AC is one degree off of what we would like it to be. And then we look around the world. If our eyes and our hearts are able to do it, we look around the world and we say, someone has to do something. And today what I want you to know is when you feel that someone has to do something, when that jumps into your heart for any situation in your life, whether it's a massive situation or a small run-of-the-mill situation, when that is, is pressing in on your heart, I want you to know you are the someone that is being called in that moment. You are the someone who's being called to get engaged in whatever is going on in that moment. God has put that burden in you to go and be engaged in that. I had someone come to me uh, 10 years ago. I was trained to do this, and so I hold on to it uh, here. But if someone comes to me with a ministry idea, they say, Preacher, this is what I think we should do. They use royal we. Same way my wife uses the word we sometimes. We should do this, but it means me should do this. Right? right? We should do this sort of thing, Pastor. 
We should do this sort of thing. Anytime I hear we should do this sort of thing, if it's not something that God has already been impressing on me, sometimes it is, and it's just confirmation of what I know God is calling this church to do. But sometimes it's like, man, we should do this sort of thing. I always turn around to the person and I say, it sounds like God is calling you to start that. Right? No one has come to me with a bad idea. It's just not things that God has impressed on me, and that's okay. If God is impressing on you a need to reach uh, this sort of group or that sort of group or to do this sort of ministry, I'm not here to slow you down. I'm here to empower you along the way, but I'm not here to carry your water either. Right? If God has called you to do it, it would be a shame for you to hand that off to someone less qualified, less called to do that service. God has put it on your heart to do it. Somebody has to do it. That person is you. There was a missionary who ended up going to China years ago, um, and she felt called to China. She felt a burden for the people of China. And so what she did was before she surrendered to the ministry, uh, she wrote every single powerful person she knew. Have you heard what's going on in China? Have you seen what's going on in China? Someone has to do something. You have power, authority, and position. You, prime minister, should go. You, pastor, should go. You, community leader, should go. You, rich businessman, should go. And all of them were like, no, 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 no. She goes to her brother. She says, brother, you're a man. You're strong. You should go. He has no desire to evangelize the Chinese people. None. It's not who he is. He turns around and he says, Sister, it sounds like maybe you should try your hand at it. And she goes and she serves. And people are one to Jesus Christ because God had burdened her with that call on her life. And she went and she did. It's big in that situation, but it can be small too. You can be driving down the road. The car breaks down on the side of the road. Somebody should help that pregnant woman who's trying to change the tire. Someone should help. I hope that there's a state trooper coming by and you fly by at 70 miles an hour. You were that somebody. right? We respond to the situations that are before us. We're going to look at responses today to the tragedy that was going on in Esther's world. Read with me in Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, When Mordecai learned uh, all that had been done, uh, the, the edict to kill the Jews, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. What Mordecai did when he heard the edict that all the Jews were going to be killed basically for his disobedience, because he chose not to honor Haman, that everybody that he was kin to was going to be killed. We call that not uh, like a, a, an equal... Uh, offense, right? Like, I offended you, you kill everybody I know, right? That's, that's not exactly what you call equitable justice, but Haman didn't care. What he did was he mourned in the midst of the tragedy. I want you to know when you hear about tragedy, when you hear about rough situations, tough situations, mourning is an appropriate response. We've lost the sense of mourning sometimes as a people. We move beyond mourning and we move to problem solving. We move to um, crowdsourcing solutions that we can fix problems. When sometimes as a, as a people, as an individual, we just need to sit 
with the heaviness of what the world is. Right? When you hear about tragedy around the world, when you hear about um, injustice or other things that, that strike your heart deep inside of you, right? there's some part of you where, that should mourn. And it's okay to sit, and that mourning is an entirely appropriate response to tragic circumstances. If you've lost a loved one, if you've, uh, God forbid, if you've lost a child along the way, mourning is an appropriate response in that situation. Some people want you to hurry up, buck up, figure it out, go do this. God has a plan. God has a purpose. They start telling you all these solutions to your problem when what you need to be doing is you just need to be walking in the grief that God has placed in front of you. It's okay to mourn. Don't let people rush you from that. You're not depressed. You're mourning. Right? It's okay to be there. Mordecai was in mourning. His uh, insolence had led to the destruction, was going to lead to the destruction of his people. The people around the Persian Empire who heard about it were mourning. They were putting on sackcloth and ashes. These are uncomfortable clothes. It's a sign of uh, repentance and destruction. It's a, uh, a sign of ultimate grief. And they're physically doing that. And Mordecai is doing that. He's standing outside the gate, mourning for what is going to come. It's okay to mourn when tragedy comes your way. It is entirely appropriate. That's an appropriate response to tragedy. It's not the only response to tragedy, but it's an appropriate response to tragedy. Continuing on, it says, When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what, uh, what this was and why it was, why he was acting like that. And so Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman was going to, uh, had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said, and Esther spoke to him and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king in the inner court without being called, there is only one law, and that is to be put to death except for the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he might live. But as for me, I haven't been called for 30 days to come to the king. Now this story right here, uh, Mordecai is in mourning and grief and Esther looks out uh, and hears about what's going on uh, with her, her dear cousin and she sends him clothes as if he had a lack of clothing, as if clothing was his problem. Maybe a, a new set of clothes will make you feel better Mordecai put this on. Mordecai refuses the clothes. She goes and sends and finds out what's going on, and he tells her the whole sad story. I refuse to bow down. Now he's going to kill all the Jews. He paid for the privilege to kill all the Jews. You are the only person in a position of authority to go and to solve this problem. Go to the king. The king made the edict. The king can make another edict. Go to the king. Go now. And Esther thinks for a minute, 
and says, I have not been called to the king for 30 days, and if I go to the king, I'll be killed. How, how weird is that, by the way? Can't go see your husband without potential execution. But that was the rule of the day. If you were not called into that inner room and you walked into that inner room, there were guards in that room whose job it was to kill you. Which is, uh, I mean, it seems weird, but it's actually fairly uh, reasonable because the number of treacherous people inside the inner court of the Persian Empire, pretty high. This king himself is going to be executed um, by his closest friends in not too many years from when this story is completed. There's a lot of bad people in the Persian court, so it's kind of self-defense. So I didn't ask for you to come, and you show up and say, hey, I've got something I need to talk to you about. If I didn't call you, I assume you're actually just trying to get close to me to kill me. And so that was the rule. If you get close to the king, the guards would kill you. Esther says, I can't go in there. The only way you don't is if he sticks his scepter out immediately to prevent me from getting killed. And he has not been looking for me. I don't know if the bloom was off the rose, if he had tired of Esther, whatever it was, Esther was no longer in the king's good graces. She wasn't being sought. She wasn't being summoned. She was just living again in solitude in her little palace of, of relative luxury. And Esther's response to tragedy in this moment was being passive. I can't do it. And this is what a lot of us do. We're passive in the face of hearts that, well, what could I do? I don't have the power to do it. These are the situations against me. This is what's against me. Uh, I'm older now, or I'm poor, or I got a bad back, or I got this, or, or I got kids. That's my excuse now, by the way. I got a lot of kids. Or I got kids. I can't do that. Right? I, I, when I think about international missions, and I, and I kind of toy with that idea in my head, I'm like, man, I got five kids and then another one that, uh, that's basically there. Like, I got a lot of kids. And I'll have a kid in my house till I'm like 90, I think. Is that right? Yeah, my wife. She just takes kids. By the way, if you, if you ever have a child and you want to offload the child on an unsuspecting family, talk to Danielle Hagenbaum. She'll take care of you, okay? Um, she, she, she's good for that. But, you know, like, we, we come up with these excuses why we can't respond. Well, my, my bank account is light. Well, once I get my house paid off, then I'll, or once I pay um, the, the, the tax note on this, then I'll have this. And we begin to, to rationalize why we're not responding to tragedy. Go, oh, I would. I mean, I really would. I would, I would help that situation. But I, I can't because of my physical limitations or my financial limitations. Or, or, or where I am in, in my life today. But, you know, if you just give me 10 more years. Well, that's what teenagers think, right? And just a few, give me, give me through high school and college, because for some reason we can act like an idiot in college. But once I get out of college, then, then I'll serve. And that's, then I'll jump in and I'll be involved. And then I'll get involved with that. But I want you to know, while mourning is an, an appropriate response um, to tragedy, while, while falling on our face in mourning is an appropriate way to respond to our own, being unresponsive to tragedy is wickedness. When you see tragedy and it doesn't move you to do something, that's wickedness in your heart. That is a broken part of you. Right? If you can see, if you can hear stories of inequity, when you can drive by the car uh, that, that's broke down with the pregnant woman with six kids on the side of the road standing beside the vehicle, right? and you can drive by without, without a second thought, that is a wickedness in your heart. There is something in you that is interminably broken. 
being unresponsive to wickedness, to tragedy, is indeed wickedness itself. Uh, Esther was behaving wickedly in this time. Esther had a position of influence, and it was risky for her to go. It would be risky for her to expose herself in that situation, but being unresponsive showed a weakness inside her character in that moment. Right? But it was only for a moment because the story continues on, uh, and, and we pick up in verse 12. It says, And they told Mordecai what Esther had said, that she could not go because she has not been called. And Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young woman will fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So Esther's character was flawed, right? She she saw the conflict and she said, I'm not going to get involved in that because life in the palace, while not ideal, was not exactly risky for her. And Mordecai throws that back at her and says, look, Your heritage, where you're from, don't think that that's not going to be found out. You are not safe in the walls of the palace. And then Mordecai expresses what I think is such a great, like, hopeful statement. He says, like, if you don't help, that's okay. You'll die. But God will raise up somebody to deliver his people. Right, and there's faith in Mordecai's voice there to say, like, you have a position to do this. But if you don't want to do it, that's your choice. I'm not worried about it. God is still in control. You don't have to obey. But maybe, Esther, maybe the reason that all these crazy bad things have happened to you up to this point has been pointing you to this moment right now. At that point, Esther relents whether she relented because she saw that she was going to die if she didn't relent, or whether she relented because she saw um, that God was working for the deliverance of the Jewish people, we're not told. Right? But she's willing to face death. She says, if I perish, I perish. That's very uh, what, what the Russian from Rocky Three, right? If he dies, he dies. Right? That's, a, that's a great Rocky Three line. Y'all just go home and watch Rocky Three later. Right? That, that's, a, that's a good movie for election season just to kind of get you feeling like American again, right? You just walk away feeling good. Uh, when, when, I won't spoil the movie, okay? It's just a, it's a good USA, USA sort of movie. But, you know, Esther's like, if I perish, I perish. I'm willing to face that death, if that's what I have to do. So, so she calls for them to fast. And this is, by the way, where the, if you read the book of Esther, like uh, literature, this is where power structure shifts. Esther was always passive, always passive. Mordecai said, do this, she did it. Mordecai said, do this, she did it. King says, do this, she does it. Everyone is telling her what to do all the way through the story. And at this point, Esther becomes this like strong female leader, right? A female empowerment leader all of a sudden. 
And now it's Mordecai does as Esther had ordered him. The rest of the book, Esther is going to be driving um, that train. But in that moment, we recognize that, that God called Esther to risky obedience. Mordecai pushed it back on her, said, you're put in this position, but he called her to a risky obedience. And I don't think that God is only calling Esther to risky obedience. He's calling us to risky obedience. Some of you will never go um, to uh, storm the beaches of some little island um, off the coast of Brazil to bring the gospel to, to, to native people who've never heard. Some of you will never go to do that. But God is still calling you to a risky obedience, an obedience that doesn't look safe in that moment, right? Like we're um, a month, also menos, um, from doing the uh, Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which is an offering that goes to support missionaries who are literally going to those beaches to share the gospel, right? Literally going into unreached areas and spending their entire time translating the Bible into a language so that the people there can read it and understand it and hear the truth that Christ died for sinners such as them. And the money that we give there goes to support those sorts of works. And you're going to have an opportunity. I'm going to call you to give, not physically on the phone. I might if you want me to. But I'm going to tell you you need to give from this stage right up here, from this platform. I'm going to talk about that. Right? And you're going to look at your budget because Christmas is coming, and you're going to say, well, I've got to give you know, this much to this person and this to this and this to this and this to this, and there's only so much pie to go around. And I want you to know that God is calling you to risky obedience even in your finances. Right? To do something that, that, that seems less than safe. And I'm not telling you to bankrupt your whole house and to take out a second mortgage and then go and, and give all that to Lottie Moon. Uh, if that's what God's calling you to do, I'm not going to tell you not to, by the way. Um, but like, like, I really think that God is calling us to a, to a generosity in that area that is uncomfortable for us. Right? That, that makes our lives different. Right? Your giving should affect your living. How you, how you give to the, the cause of Christ around the world, uh, and locally, obviously, to, to local ministries as well, how you give should affect how you live. If, if you don't feel your gift at the end of the month, you probably didn't give the way God called you to give. Right? And so for some of us, the risky life that we're going to have is to say, you know what, I'm going to give enough so that this hurts me a little bit this year. I'm going to give so that it affects what, how else I'm allowed, able to do Christmas, how else I'm able to do uh, my, my personal eating out. Right? Some of you might live on ramen and beans for a couple weeks um, so that you can pay for what you give uh, to the, to, to the Lottie Moon Christmas. But it's a way to live a riskier life. By the way, that amount of sodium is probably risky for you anyway, so right, in, in the ramen. Right, so you're, you're doing your own, own risky game there. But God calls us to risky obedience. The Christian life is not a safe life. For some reason, we have, we have made it so. And, and part of that is because we haven't experienced persecution in the church. Like, I don't fear persecution for the church. I'm not rushing to get it. But it's not going to be a bad thing for us. Right? It'll be a bad thing for some of us individually. But it's going to be good for the church. You're going to recognize that, that what God is doing in history is bigger than this comfortable space that we've carved out. 
So guys, God calls us to risky obedience. Someone here might be being called to do something big. Like God may, uh, he may have been working on you like he worked on me when I was 18 years old and I surrendered to the ministry. I said, this is what I'm going to do. Like I wanted to make money. That's what I wanted to do. I didn't know what my dad does. I still don't fully understand what my dad did to make money over the course of his career. Um, I think it was all legal though. Um, But I think dad, Um, (laughs) I think it was all legal. But I don't understand. Computer, something, something, something. I don't understand. It. But I thought I could go and do what my dad does. I make some money. But God had a different plan for my life. And so he called me to surrender that and to live this. And he's been faithful with me the whole way through. If God is calling you to do that, I, I don't want you to wait. Somebody needs to go and do. And if that's what God has called you to do, to go, to give your life away, to give your career away, uh, and to go do something else, that's okay. If your second career is to go and be a, a missionary, I would love to support you along that path. If you're a young person here today, and you're like, man, God is just working on my life to go, and I feel compelled to go and do some form of ministry, I want you to know there is not a better and worse life in the world than ministry. I mean, it hits both sides, honestly. If that's where God has called you to be, you need to go. You don't need to wait. You don't need to wait. God is calling us to risky obedience. But really what God is calling us to do is that wherever we find ourselves, in whatever situation you find yourselves, He's calling us to respond in faith, not fear. In faith, not fear. You have a responsibility to respond to tough situations faithfully. And whether that's a huge situation or a small situation, whether it's a charitable gift that you're going to make at a time period, or whether it's, am I going to stop my car and be inconvenienced for this appointment that I was going to do? God gives you divine interruptions. People will walk into your office. They'll walk by your house. They'll show up in your circle, and you have to choose, am I willing to be interrupted in this moment, or is my plan more important than that plan? All right, is my plan more important than this thing that walks in front of us? God is drawing human history forward. That is the doctrine of providence, that he is authoring the direction of history. And you are a part of that great draw that God is making. He's drawing you to something. And you have appointments every single day. Will you be faithful in those appointments or will you be fearful? Will you respond uh, willing to risk something? Or will you continue to play it safe? American Christianity has been a, been a story of safe playing since about the 1960s. We have consistently played it safe. We don't want to risk it. We don't want to to rock the boat. Just kind of keep going through. We'll bring some more people in. We'll raise a little bit more money. We'll pay another guy to do another ministry. But God doesn't need another, like, dude up on stage doing ministry here. God has called you to do ministry where you are. Will you respond to those situations this week? They're coming. They're, sometimes they're big. I mean, Esther's was a huge situation. It would cost her her very life. Sometimes they're small. But even those small situations, those apparently small situations, have massive implications for human history. We don't know what those small acts of obedience will do. Someone one time, by the way, shared the gospel with Billy Graham. Right? They told Billy Graham, Christ died for sinners, you're a sinner. 
you'll believe in Christ, you'll have everlasting life. And in that moment of evangelism to Billy Graham, Billy Graham's soul was converted from death to life. And millions of people came to know Jesus Christ because of him. We delivered shoeboxes to countries around the world because someone shared the gospel with Billy Graham, right? And then he shared the gospel with his son Franklin. Right? You pull that, pull that net back another generation, and someone told that guy who told Billy Graham about Jesus Christ. Those conversations seem risky, especially today, to put yourself out there, to tell someone that there is truth and that there's, there's fiction, and that we stand for truth, that Christ died for sinners, and it's okay to call people sinners where they are, but it's not okay to leave people there. We're called to rescue the perishing, care for the dying, are you engaged in that activity? Or are you just trying to get through another week to come back to church, to sit in your nice room, your AC, your electric lights, and your beautiful YouTube and Facebook Live? God is expecting more from you personally. Are you going to give it or not? Let's pray.